Welcome back. Let me tell you, I really like this chapter. <laughs> I hope you're enjoying reading Lewis as, as much as I am. I, I've enjoyed it particularly because Lewis puts some really old ideas that have fallen out of fashion into some really plain language for us. The, the last chapter wasn't very easy, and so it's nice that, that Lewis begins chapter four by summarizing its implications for us. He writes, quote, if our, if our argument has been sound, acts of reasoning are not interlocked with the total interlocking system of nature as all its other items are interlocked with one another. They are connected with it in a different way, as the understanding of a machine is certainly connected with the machine, but not in the way that the parts of the machine are connected with each other." End quote. What's Lewis saying here? Uh, you know, in one sense, a machine works the way it works, whether or not we understand it, especially if you're, if you're like me, uh, you know, a pretty non-gadgety person. Uh, all this stuff might as well work by magic. But, but clearly, just because I don't really get it doesn't mean it's not understandable or not related to understanding uh, as such. Some, somebody understands it, and the reason somebody can understand it is precisely because it, you know, my computer, for instance, came out of human understanding and knowing and thinking. Uh, the, the computer that I'm using right now was patterned after a human thought, and now it works without my thinking about it, but it is think-aboutable, if, <laughs> if I might put it that way, precisely because it originated from thinking. Lewis is gonna make a similar argument uh, in this chapter about nature as such. We can think about that interlocking system of things we call nature, but nature and reason are in principle separate things. Nature is understandable to us because thought is prior to nature, just as it's prior to the computer, if you will. Nature is of thought, and therefore the, the echo of thinking that exists in human beings can, can then access and intelligibly understand nature just as I can if I tried to understand the computer because it is of thought. In short, nature is a consequence of God's thoughts, and we sort of think God's thoughts after him as creatures, though, when we try to understand the nature that he's made. Let's see how Lewis argues for this. Drawing upon the distinction between cause and effect on the one hand and ground and consequent on the other that we saw last time, Lewis is now trying to help us see the distinction between nature and reason more broadly. Reason is not a species of nature, but is rather prior to nature. And you can see why this would be important. Uh, you know, in a book on miracles, on, on the supernatural, as it were, it might be helpful to highlight more immediate aspects of reality that can't be reduced to nature. And for Lewis, reason is one of those things. Now, he, he makes a fun move right out of the gate. He, he says this, quote, I'm not maintaining that consciousness as a whole must necessarily be put in the same position. Pleasures, pains, fears, hopes, affections, and mental images need not, end quote. And note the qualifier necessarily, though. Lewis is deliberately ambiguous here. I'm not necessarily saying, you know, maybe the existence of consciousness already has non-naturalistic implications. Maybe, that is, maybe naturalism can't account for consciousness. But he's not making that case here. And this is a, a really why I want to pause here, because it's such a, a wise way of making an argument. If you aren't sure of the answer to all aspects of a problem, it's, it's good to be honest and cautious about that and speak in areas where things are a bit clearer to 
to you. And that's what Lewis is doing here. Instead of talking about everything, he's zoning in on a particular issue and running with it to great effect. Now, so, so he's not trying to say that nature can't account for consciousness or subjective experiences. Maybe it can, maybe it can't. This isn't about that distinction. It's not about the distinction then, for instance, between soul and body or something like this. The distinction he wants us to see is the distinction between, as he puts it, quote, reason and the whole mass of non-rational events, whether physical or psychological, end quote. So that's how he's framing it. Reason versus non-rational events, even conscious and psychological non-rational events. But, but then where do reason and nature link up? How are they actually related? Um, Lewis uses the metaphor of a frontier here. And that's a it's a really important metaphor that we'll come back to. But here's the idea. Our acts of reasoning are carried out in the, in the, in the world of nature, but reason is not of nature. So in the world of nature, but not of nature. Uh, and at that intersection, if you will, and this is one of Lewis's key points here, all the traffic at the intersection of that frontier between nature, uh, between nature and reason, all of the traffic is, it, it flows in one direction. Nature does not produce reason, but because divine reason is the source of nature, creaturely reason can cultivate and perfect nature. Um, there's, an old, there's an old reading of Genesis uh, that sees this as part of what's going on even in the garden, originally in, in man's relationship to creation. Note that, that God in Genesis 2 make, makes the world and then himself plants a garden. It's God who plants the garden. And then he places man in the garden to perfect and keep and expand it. Man's supposed to, to fill the earth, you see. <laughs> Man sort of puts the finishing touches on creation, so to speak. And that could be overstated or sloppily stated. But the idea is that we make out of what God has made. He made everything from nothing. And then we make something out of what he has made. Uh, through reason, which again is, is more than just using logic, we give order to nature, unleash its intrinsic potentialities and such. And a garden is, is, is a wonderful example of this. You don't overcome or dominate nature when you garden, you unleash it. And indeed, sometimes you enable uh, modes of flourishing and fruition and development that would not have occurred if you left nature alone. Uh, we, can, we can speak similarly of, of man's relationship with animals. Uh, but crucially, the reverse is not the case. If animals set the terms of man's relationship to animals, and if plants set the terms of man's relationship to plants, we'd quickly be engrossed in chaos. Humans have the unique capacity then to, to order the relationship in such a way that serves both them, serves the world of plants and animals, and serves us. But the reverse is not quite true. And this works out internally as well in ourselves and our, the relationship between our rational and our non-rational faculties. We have all sorts of animal and kind of pre-discursive drives in ourselves. We're, we're hungry. We, we have strong feelings about things. We get angry, sometimes legitimately. We want passion and romance. And for, for Lewis, these sensations might all be explained by nature in a certain sort of way. And they're all in principle useful and good things. But this is only when they're ordered by reason. Reason doesn't take them away. 
reason actually raises them up, just as a garden doesn't diminish plants, but actually orders their freedom and their spontaneity. If the conscious ordering of the, of the soul, then by, by analogy, is ignored in ourselves, uh, we see vices like wrath and, and lust and gluttony, where we ought to see justice, love, and, and the glad enjoyment of God's gifts. So, so when reason orders nature, nature flourishes. When nature suspends or refuses the influence of reason, it's actually worse for nature itself. And that's a big point Lewis is making here. It's probably worth pausing here to, to, to make especially clear what's included in reason. Um, again, when Lewis talks about reason or ordering things by reason, he's not referring to the human in employment of the laws of logic or some Sherlock Holmes's power of observation and deduction. That is to be sure included. Those things are included in reason. But, but classically speaking, when we talk about human reasoning capability, we're basically talking about whatever makes human discourse and dialogue and the process of conscious thinking and interpretation possible. Now, I don't know what it would mean to order a garden by the laws of logic alone, though some logic would apply here and there, but I can certainly imagine you know, what it would mean to know about the various plants, make fine-grained fine observations about the plants, and then order the plants according to what will be the best for each of them, as far as I can tell, as well as what might be the best for the whole garden collectively, not, not to mention the consideration of what will remember, render the whole most beautiful. Now, so, so Lewis' notion of ordering nature by reason is not the idea of a sort of disembodied calculation machine. Uh, here, here's one way of looking at it. Th think of the mind, the, the faculty in human beings that does the activity of reasoning, as using reason on what it observes in the world. So, so there's two directions here. There's a, a set of rules and structures that kind of come with the mind, but then there's the mind's activity of being presented with the phenomena of the world that the mind detects, organizes, interprets, imagines concerning, thinks about, etc. So, so said a little differently, the human mind and the act of reasoning that it undergoes has something kind of behind it, you know, structures, rules, tendencies, and some things in front of it, the experiences and sensations that we ordered by and interpret by the means of those structures and rules and tendencies. And this could all be qualified and Lewis will, will actually qualify it two chapters from now. But for now, it's important to say that when Lewis is talking about reason over against nature, he's referring to most, most basically man's capacity to undergo a process of reasoning, evaluating and interpreting based upon much more than logic alone. In a word, man's capacity to kind of consciously cultivate the world and one's own thoughts about the world and oneself, in fact. <laughs> okay, how's reason related to God? If reason is not of nature, is the act of reasoning intrinsically divine? Well, to be sure, it's, it's God-like in a certain way. You know, reason is divine in a certain sort of way. But we should nevertheless, nevertheless not think of God as sort of possessing the reasoner as though we were just puppets in each act of reasoning. Reasoning is something we do. We are active employers of it as creatures. And so in our very selves, in our very possession, we experience as creatures the frontier between nature and reason that Lewis is talking about. Then the interaction between them in that frontier um, 
You might even say that it is the unique property of mankind to straddle and just be that frontier between nature and reason. So human reason is perhaps better thought to be a sort of reflection, as it were, of an original that stands outside the order of nature. Think of nature, if you will, as a mirror that has its own intrinsic properties, you know, glass and such, a mirror has its own intrinsic properties, but also that contains the reflection of something that is sourced outside of itself, just as a mirror contains the reflection of something that's not the mirror. So the original capital R reason, God's reason, is the source of that reflection. And the reflection is not, uh, is not the original. The reflection is not the thing that it's reflecting, but it's patterned after and sourced outside of the mirror itself, even if wrapped and entangled in that mirror. So the world is the result of God's divine thoughts and wisdom. And human reason is the sort of that reflection in the world that enables us to read the world as a finite grasp and participation in the divine wisdom. Lewis, Lewis briefly entertains the option that we might just say that reason is kind of just part of some cosmic mind or whatnot that is still part of the order of nature. But, Lewis argues, this just kicks the problem back one step. If the cosmic mind has its mind-likeness, its reason, as a result of nature, but if nature does not produce reason, as we've already established, then there can be no guarantee that the reason of the cosmic mind is the kind of reason we're looking for. The only reason that will do the trick is a reason whose origin lies outside the order of nature and which therefore renders it and guarantees its intelligibility to us. So in summary, reason both transcends nature, but it is also in nature. Nature is of it, in fact. And when we, when we witness the existence of this thing called reason in ourselves, we discover something that while discovered in nature, nevertheless is clearly not of nature. Lewis uses the metaphor of a, of a pond covered with lily pads and materials that obscure what lies beneath them. So you can kind of imagine this, this pond of water where you, you can barely see any of the water and see through the water because it's so covered in things. And so some things are just kind of flee, uh, free floating above the pond. But some things that appear to be merely floating on the surface actually have roots that go through the entirety of the body of water, through the pond, and they're planted in the ground beneath it. That is, despite a seamless interaction with the free-floating things on the surface of the pond, it's nevertheless planted in the same soil underneath the pond that upholds the entire pond itself. And so similarly, we discover reason by using it in the world of nature, but upon reflection realizes that its roots are very much beyond nature and lie in the very self-same source that is the source of nature herself, that is God, who creates through the Logos. But Lewis goes a step further, and I just love this. <laughs> he doesn't just say, as, as I've just said, that the traffic between nature and reason goes only one direction. He observes that when man rightly and lovingly gives order to nature, nature receives reason, quote, like the arrival of a king among his own subjects, or a mahout visiting his own elephant. The elephant may, may run amok, nature may be rebellious, but from observing what happens when nature obeys it, uh, it, all, it is almost impossible not to conclude that it is her very nature to be a subject. 
all happens as if she had been designed for that very role, end quote. Now, Lewis is not unaware that man can abuse both the world of plants and of animals. And indeed, like his friend Tolkien, if you read Lewis's fiction, the, the mark of evil men is very often those whose activities damage the world of plants and animals in an unprincipled and overly willful way. So we need to be careful here. It's the very nature of nature not to be governed by mere power, but to be governed by reason. And those are two very different things that are often confused. Even animal rights activists, for instance, whether, you know, whatever you think of any particular proposal there, they employ enormous amounts of the resources of reason to accomplish the flourishing of animals. And similarly, those concerned with forests and such employ enormous amounts of distinctively human activity to serve the ecologies that in turn serve mankind. So, you know, sort of use a tree, plant a tree or whatnot. But, but Lewis is, is nevertheless getting us back again to that Edenic insight. It's part of the glory of man to order the potencies of nature. Uh, and this isn't just about taking care of plants and animals, even though even as we depend upon them in, in other ways for food and aspects of civilization and such. It's also again about our, our relationship to ourselves. Part of growth and wisdom and maturity is the progressive ordering of our desires and our appetites in a way that actually serves our whole selves. And that's really important to point out. But in here, let's make a qualification though. Just as we can confuse reason with mere power in the realm of plants and animals, we can easily confuse reason in control when speaking about ourselves. That is, we might think that a man governed by reason is one who is doing the most amount of thinking or who is the most thorough and complicated and externally rigorous in his ordering. But all of this can ironically simply reflect another version of government by the passions. A lot of men overthink and overreason out of fear or out of some motivation to remain in an inhuman degree of conscious control of each moment of their life. But this is precisely not to be ordered by reason, which would detect that humans aren't like this and that it's not good for us to be overly obsessive. <laughs> this is rather to make reason serve, it's making reason serve my need to feel in control an irrational drive or my need to make sure that everything is in order. And that's actually not to be in self-control. That's actually not biblical fruit of the spirit self-control. That's rather to use our ordering faculties in the service of a disordered anxiety. No, to be, to be ordered by reason is simply to live all of our lives in accordance with reason, to have the wisdom to know when we're not living well and the wisdom to know how to cultivate our faculties toward the good, which on a Christian account cannot be divorced from a big conversation, of course, about the grace of God. <laughs> in any case, the, the wise man still feels appetites and powerful emotions and lives with the same spontaneity and freedom as any healthy human but they cultivate awareness of when those things reflect disordered desires and thoughts. And they, and they cultivate finding ways to bring those under the tutelage of a good God in accordance with his way for us, uh, with the order of reason that he's, he's made in, in his creation. And again, we can't, we can't get into it all here, but for Christians, this is largely about finding ways to see how we distrust God and, and need his grace and his renewal in our lives. All right, last comment. Lewis, as it turns out, is drawing on some old medieval categories in this chapter. The mind of man is always angling to find the truth, but God himself is the ultimate truth in which all truths are true. Similarly, the will of man is always seeking the good, 
but God himself is the ultimate good in which all goods are good. <laughs> Lewis is going to argue the second point in the chapter we'll see next time. And putting these together, he's summarizing a lot of medieval philosophy, which he was quite familiar with, of course. Uh, they thought of the mind of man through the use of reason as, as that mind moves toward the truth as implicitly moving toward God. And similarly, they thought of the will of man moving through desire as man moves through the good as implicitly desiring God. And now what implicitly is a, is a big qualifier there. Obviously, this is all frustrated by sin and such. But the point is that God is implicitly known in all knowledge and desired in all desires. Uh, Chesterton once wrote in his clever way, uh, every knock at a brothel door is a knock for God. <laughs> Well, that's enough for this time. So far, Lewis has taken us through the manner in which reason links the human creature to a source outside of nature. And next time he'll show us how our moral experience does the same thing, linking our wills to a source that is outside of nature. So I'll see you then.